From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Goal Own Goal. Joining me, the human goal himself, the great and good Roger Mitchell. Hi, matey. How are you? I'm, I'm fine, Grant. I'm okay. Uh, how are you? Hello, boy. Not too bad. Not too bad. I am, uh, I've swapped the heat and the golf courses of South Carolina for the cold and the grey and the damp of Zurich this week. Oh, yes. Yes. Well, I'm actually in Glasgow, but I was thinking about you today as I saw bits of the Fulham game. Oh. Uh, I didn't see the end of it. I'm sorry. I, I left it at one each. What happened, Grant? You're baiting me now, Roger. I know you're no, baiting no, me. No, 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 no. Well, this, 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 is, this is, obviously, this features in my goal on goal this week. There's no, no doubt about it. This is, uh, so Man United scored in a third minute of added time with a breakaway goal to condemn Fulham to their second 2-1 defeat against the Manchester club in the last eight days. You know, Roger, and it's absolutely heartbreaking because... As a Fulham fan, I'd rather have got thumped 4-0, which is what you kind of expect when you come up from the championship and you play teams like City and United. You kind of expect, well, we'll write those games off and we'll focus on beating Bournemouth and beating Villa and beating Wolves and getting our points that way. So to have deserved at least a point against City last week and probably if they'd been a bit more incisive, they could have scored uh, a winning goal on a late breakaway a couple of times in the, at the end of that City game playing against 10 men. That was heartbreaking enough to lose to that penalty, which to me wasn't a penalty to Bruyne. There was contact, but he went down after the contact <laughs> and won the penalty. And, you know, that's it's fair play. De Bruyne was magnificent, so, you know, that's, that's the way it goes. But today, you know, second half, we were all over Man United. For Fulham to have 60% possession against United and lose to, as I say, a breakaway goal in the 93rd minute was was just heartbreaking. I mean, look, it's everything that's good and bad about football, right? It gets your heart rate going, gets your pulse rate going. It's it's great to watch your team make a good account of themselves and devastating when the result well, goes the way you kind of expect it to, but in that way, it's just brutal. Well, well, no, I, I, I think you need to start changing your mindset a little bit, mate. I said this to you after the first game of the season when you said, oh, with Liverpool, I think you got a draw. And I said, this was the best chance you would ever get to beat them. And, uh, yeah. that's been proven to be the case because of, of what Liverpool have done this year. Um, you guys are doing extremely well. You know, so um, the way I would look at it, if I was you, I was saying, look, what did we lose today? We lost one point. Um, we didn't lose two points because we, we went from a win to a draw. You lost one point. Uh, you're comfortably uh, away from the relegation area. That's been taken off the table. You should be just enjoying your football now and just... You know, you've got a good team, a strong team, and uh, just let that team that's going to be there next year build a bit, a little bit more of a winning mentality like I'm asking you to do and say, you need to go to United and say, this is a fragile team and we're a good team and we can beat them. I, I think that's where you need to get your head at these days, Grant. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that, Rog, because uh, look, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. and um, And I think that's why it hurts so much to lose in this fashion because we should have beaten them. You know, we were the better side. There was no there doubt about go. it. And and look, against City, City are cut above, right? And and yep. even against 10 men, I still thought we did well to hang with them. You know, they just they could play nine against 11 and, it, <laughs> and you still make them favourites. But no, we are a better team. But there's, um, anyone who's a Fulham fan will tell you there's an adjective, Fulhamish. You know, when something's Fulhamish, it's the sort of thing that happens to Fulham. And the last two weeks, as my dad would say, have both been Fulhamish. You know, to, to give a really good account of yourselves, to deserve to win, not even to be clinging on for a draw. You know, to be to be looking like we might snatch a late winner yep. and to have them go down the other end of the tour. It's Fulhamish. So yeah. um, you're right. It's, they're a good team. They're playing good football. I'm not worried about it. It's recalibrating your expectations before you would just enjoy giving a good account yourselves against the cities and United of the world. The point. You're right. We should be expecting to take points off them, and uh, it's a, it's it's gutting when you don't. I have to say. 
But that's true. And of course, let's segue into that for our Gunnar friends, uh, Colin, Elliot and the others. Um, they're five points clear now. Arsenal are five points clear. And mm-hmm. Grant, you, you, we're football guys, right? We know what all these Gunners are thinking, regardless of what they say. Regardless of what they say, they've got a little corner of their head that's saying, you know, we just maybe get a draw against when we play them directly. We can hang on. There's the World Cup. We can regen. You know, the, you know they are getting over their skis, aren't they? Oh, no no doubt. And look, with, with good reason, right? Arsenal are playing well this season. They're, they're scraping wins against teams. They're holding their own against the big clubs. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're playing good football. They've got good players front to back. I, I think I think the depth of their squad is probably the, the problem they're going to face, especially if they get injuries in the World Cup. But look, I, I, do you know what, Roger? I, I think for all of us who've become a little bit tired of the City monopoly, I think we're all kind of hoping that Arsenal can hang on, right? I think it'd be great to see Arsenal hold City off this year. Yeah, well, of course, um, doubly me, because I had that Pierce trade on, you know, long Arsenal, short Liverpool. Um, because, you know, I don't know. I just looked at that documentary. I'd heard people like Colin and Elliot talk about what was happening there. Uh, Arteta has surprised me. You know, I saw him as a player quite close up when he played for Glasgow Rangers before he went down south. And I thought he was a great player, but I, I wasn't sure he had, you know, the famous, you know, character for, for the British football. But he's he's proven it. And um, hats off. They play great football. You know, the structure of their play is really, really good. And, you know, I'll tell you what, another segue here on the week that uh, England announced their World Cup squad. We said that's the last time as well. England is very blessed with attacking uh, players. And if they've got any weaknesses, it's in the back four and certainly the goalie. Um, and I just think Southgate does not have the gumption to play to England's strengths and just go for it. Because I think if you did in this World Cup, you're one of the favourites. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. 100%. I don't think he will either, which is which is a great shame. But, you know, there's a little voice in the back of my head that says to me, he's probably out after this tournament unless he wins, right? Unless they win the World Cup, he's probably going to get moved on. So why not go for it, right? Why not Why not play Foden and play Bellingham and, and play these kids and let them give them their head and just say, look, go and attack, enjoy your football. And, you know, don't worry, Harry Maguire's behind you in case they get through. Well, so Harry Maguire and, and also Phillips, who uh, hasn't really kicked a ball because of injury and everything like that. Why, why are they in the squad when there, there's a lot of players that have been excluded? You know, yesterday Brentford uh, did beat City. Tony. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, or the boy that plays for AC Milan in defence. I just think uh, Southgate just strikes me as this, you know, nobody got sacked buying an IBM type guy. Uh, and I'm afraid that doesn't win your World Cup. I just I just don't think it does. No, I, no, I agree. I agree. But I have to say that the, the weirdest thing about this World Cup for me, and I know for you as well, I just cannot imagine a World Cup without Italy in it. It just doesn't seem right. Well, there's you know? been two recently. There's been two. I think they yep. didn't even... You know, Italy's gone through a strange period because they won the Euros in between. Uh, well, listen, we, we, we can we could talk a lot about Italian football, but it's, it's a bigger conversation. I just stay in it th- talking about Qatar for a second. You know, isn't it bizarre, Grant? You know, we did say this about six months ago that as we got closer, there'd be a whole lot of strange stuff coming out about Qatar and human rights and people trying to get on the side of the angels and certain people trying to, you know, uh, rewrite history. Did you see Blatter? you know, saying um, it was the wrong decision to go there. I mean, some people have got no shame, Grant. I mean, yeah. what's he, your... He is, he is particularly shameless. And I I know I flagged it to you this week, but I'm not sure if you had a chance to watch it. There's a great new four-part documentary on Netflix called FIFA Uncovered, which I, as I don't think you probably had a chance to watch, but I, I would thoroughly recommend it. And it walks you through the corruption scandal and goes back to the origins of it when Zhao Havelange was um, ousted to Stanley Rouse back in uh, 1974, I think it was. And that's really when the whole thing, the corruption started. You had Horst Dassler, one of the brothers who founded Adidas, was basically set up a rights company, Rog, you know, something we've talked about <laughs> to the bitter end now, rights. And it was rights that this all started, but he set up a company called ISL 
paid Havelange under the table to gift the rights to ISL and made an absolute fortune because he had all the rights to the World Cup right at the point where Havelange started bringing in Coca-Cola as a sponsor and all these big... You know, before 78, it was, it was a piddly little event, frankly. You know, the 74 World Cup in Germany was the last kind of hometown, homely World Cup. 78 in Argentina was when not only the, the modern-day World Cup began, but also, you know, the controversy because it yep. was staged in Argentina right after a violent coup and, you know, the final was held 500 yards from a prison where there were people being and, uh, abducted and, and beaten. And Peru, Peru were beaten 6-0. Uh, That's right, I, to, to get uh, Brazil through, was it, or Argentina not through. Not yeah, Argentina, Argentina through. They needed to win by at least four goals, if not yeah. five. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it it's was, a difficult organisation, uh, FIFA. But, and if you... but you know, what was interesting, Roger, about this documentary, um, Blatter was interviewed for it extensively, and he is in there talking about it extensively. And, and he's really an old man now. You know, when you see him, he's aged dramatically since we last saw him getting led away in handcuffs. <laughs> but still, you know, there's no remorse. There's no... There's a kind of twinkle in his eye when he talks about it all. It's all a bit kind of jokey. And what's interesting was the story focused on Jack Warner, the CONCACAF president yep. from Trinidad and Tobago. And the story there is remarkable. He was replaced by a guy from the Cayman Islands who was every bit as bent, if not more bent, than Jack Warner. And you, you kind of have to read between the lines a bit, but it, it, the conclusion is almost that Blatter's, you know, it wasn't Blatter's doing. It was all the other members of the Exco that got together and were taking bungs under the table. I don't believe that for a second. I'm absolutely certain he was taking as many bungs as the rest of them. But it's a, it's a fascinating documentary and well worth not only your time, but any other listener's time that, that has a chance to watch it on Netflix. FIFA Uncovered. Uh, yeah, I'll be interested to talk to you again about this once you've seen it and get your, get your opinion. Because I know, you know, you've, you've been in those rooms with those guys. You know, you were on the UEFA... Yeah. committee so you 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 know a lot of the characters and you know the politics and it's it's a real eye-opener for a football fan yeah 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 anyway let, let's see what happens with uh with qatar i i just think you know all these people rightly so having issues you know when the world cup ambassador i think that's his name comes out and says uh, homosexuality is a mental illness i mean like that really can't fly grant you know not in the same moment that you're talking about the football family and all the reasons that you're taking it to expand football into new parts of the world, which is always the, the justification for going to South Africa and you're going to obviously Qatar, is you're trying to um, uh, make the game more popular. But you can't come out and say things like that now. Uh, and, you know, people like Brewdog sponsors trying to like get on the right side of making the comments and, uh, they they particularly, I think everybody felt that that smacked so badly of hypocrisy that they themselves had a huge amount of scandals and they're going for the bigger scandal to try and cover up their own guilt. Uh, there's a certain ring of hell for that kind of person, I think. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I, I just think this World Cup, you add in all the injuries that are happening already, they're going to happen there and they're going to happen after. Uh, and I don't think it will be remembered well. Uh, I just, I just don't. No, I think you're right. I think the only thing that can save it is the football. You know, which is that's which, right. Which is a good and a bad thing, right? If if we get fantastic, entertaining, attacking football and great games and drama on the football, it will go a long way to helping people forget the stuff off the pitch. But if we get the kind of football we saw in South Africa, for example, you know, this will be a disastrous World Cup in every sense of the word, and and the inquest will go on for a long, long time. But, it's, you know, it's interesting, Roger, we've, we've not seen any talk of a boycott. We've not seen any talk of countries wanting to make a genuine stand against the parts that they don't agree with about how the Qataris live their lives. Um, there's been no talk of it. The closest I've seen is, uh, I think, Hummel, the, the sponsor of the Danish, yeah. Yeah. the Danish team, have made their logos the same colour as the shirt. So they don't stand out yeah. on the shirt, you know. That, that that's as far as I've seen anybody go. You've got the rainbow armbands. You've got you you've got that kind of thing, which you know I I can agree with you. I, I I think it's a little bit toe in the water, half and half. Well, you look at but, look go um, back to nineteen eighty and nineteen eighty four, right? When first the Americans boycotted the Moscow Olympics, and then the Russians boycotted the Los Angeles Olympics, right? Those were proper boycotts. That's two biggest countries in the world saying we're going to make a stand and you can whatever it may be whether it's principles or not you one could argue 
it was more cynical on both sides. But at least they did something, apart from pay kind of half-hearted lip service to wanting to be seen to criticise something, but we don't want to kill the cash cow. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting because it's right upon us now, Grant, and uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But in the meantime, we're not short of drama in the our world of sport, entertainment, and of course now linked to bank finance. Um, I think most people listening to this show will be tuning in to hear your views on a couple of things. So I, yeah. I will, I will start off, and I try and get the right context here because uh, context is important. You for at least a couple of years, if not three years, have had an issue with the crypto narrative. Um, you've had major, major personal decisions that you yourself have made about taking a stand and saying, I, I don't believe this is real. And so much so that I will change my own life, my own business life to uh, walk the talk on that. Uh, you've interviewed and shared views with guys like Mark Cahodes, who uh, for a good few months, if not a year, has been telling everybody about FTX. Um, you also with me have said, you know, this NFT thing was various versions of a Ponzi scheme or or, or all, all smoke and mirrors or, you know, just a, a castle of sand. So we've now got FTX that has gone down. FTX is a major sponsor of sport from Mercedes to Stadia around the world. Um, and that's the same for a whole lot of other crypto sponsors that have come in with big money to uh, replace other sponsors that have gone away, like betting sponsors. Can you tell people, Grant, with that context, why FTX happened? Why wasn't it seen? And what does that mean going forward now? Oh, where to start? How did it happen? It's it's fraud, pure and simple. It's just an outright fraud, Rog. It's a the bastard son of a Ponzi scheme and a fraud. And um, it was perpetrated by people who were bad actors. Now, you could make a case, and people will, I suspect, when this sees the cold, hard light of a courtroom, that these were quote-unquote young kids who didn't really understand what they were doing and they didn't understand securities laws and they... You know, thought they were doing something with I, I, I forget what the, uh, the 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 buzzword is. If extended altruism or effective altruism, I can't remember what the the word is. You know, the more you make, the more you can give away, and they will yep. hide themselves behind that at some point. But the simple truth is, they've incinerated billions of dollars. Billions of dollars have gone missing because of the blockchain. You can track hundreds of millions of dollars that were you know, moved out of wallets when they shouldn't have been and gone places they shouldn't have gone. And this is a very incestuous circle between a bunch of crypto bros, there's no other word for it, but they've sucked in, unfortunately, pension funds, retirement endowments. They've, they've, they've Sequoia. brought in money. Well, I say unfortunately for the pension funds, it's not so unfortunate for Sequoia. They're big boys. You know, for the, the likes of Sequoia, the VC funds who've, torched hundreds of millions of dollars frankly that's on them they 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 should have done their due diligence they know what this is all about and i you know i have no sympathy whatsoever for any professional investor who looked at ftx who met with sam bankman fried who met with his co-ceo who looks like violet elizabeth bott from just william um <laughs> who met with the chief tech engineers you know i i, I spoke to friends this week one of my friends um, told me that he knew a guy that went to see them in the Bahamas. They wanted him to invest $100 million. And he met with them and just walked out and said, this is a complete joke. Like how these guys are going to raise a dime is beyond me because they're just incredible. And I mean that in the true sense of the word. They just they have no credibility. And it looks and feels like a fraud. So, you know, if one savvy investor can see that, there is absolutely zero reason why others can't, other than they've been blinded by the prospects. They've been blinded by the, what I would class as very dubious charisma of Bankman Freed. And they've got suckered by a good old get-rich-quick scheme sold by a snake oil salesman. What it means going forward, Rog, is far more interesting and, and potentially far more destabilising because, you know, right now, 
this has happened remarkably quickly, as everything in crypto does, because it is the wild, wild west. There's no regulation. There's no safety net. So when these things unravel, they unravel very, very quickly and very, very expensively. So uh, FTX has gone from, you know, customers being assured via the CEO's Twitter feed that they have enough money to cover customer withdrawals and everything's fine to finding out there was, you know, $1 for every 10 of assets that they supposedly had to the company filing Chapter 11 bankruptcy on Friday night. And now on Monday morning, every institutional investor in crypto companies, particularly exchanges, has got a very, I think, simple decision to make. Take your money out. Take it out right now and put it somewhere that is regulated. So, you know, I don't think we've seen the end of this. In fact, we're just at the beginning of it. The, the Bitcoin price is not the tell here. Look at the Bitcoin price and say, oh, well, it's, you know, it's, it seems to have stabilised over the weekend. I don't think that's either here or there. I think next week you're going to start to see people voting with their feet and, and selling their stakes in these companies and selling them at any price, basically, because the career risk for a lot of people was missing out on this gold rush Correct. The career risk now has shifted in the space of 12 hours to if I still own this stuff, I'm probably going to get fired. So we will see that reflected in market action and pricing in the next week. And look, the world is different now, Rog. The world is very, very different. Frauds are starting to get exposed. And this is yep. always what happens. And we've spoken about this, you and I, at yep. length. This yep. is what happens when interest rates go up. And there's a there's a cost of investing in these crazy schemes, when the opportunity cost is zero, it doesn't matter. But when you start investing in things and you could have 5% risk-free in a in a treasury bond, it's a whole different ball of wax. And that's why these frauds start to come to the surface. So the world's changed and it's not changed for the better if you're a crypto investor. And on, on Monday, I suspect you are going to see that reflected in an awful lot of prices. Well, but let, let me come on to this a little bit because it, it for me, it is so important uh, and and we can call it whatever you want. The world has changed, the fourth turning, the, the the change in narrative, whatever you want. But when you said people fell for dubious charm, the main people that have fallen for a lot of this stuff over the last 20 years, and we'll come on to a rather friend later, also include the big financial media companies, CNBC, who have cheerleaded a lot of these people without shame for many, many years. And now seemingly when these frauds get uncovered, and as you're, you're rightly say, there will be many of them now, they seem to just brush it off. And it's almost as if they're reporting it as travelogue, the news. There's nobody that says, well, we've been cheerleading this for five years. We got this badly wrong. You probably lost an awful lot of your money. It's just like today's news is this, FTX is a, is a crock of shit, good luck. How did they get away with that, Grant? And what, how do they still uh, exist? Look, well, look, they, they haven't necessarily gotten away with it yet because the bodies haven't floated to the surface. But the simple truth is, Rog, you have to look at the business model of, let's take CNBC, for example, right? The business model of CNBC is to get people to watch because they sell advertising revenue. That's it. It's a really, really simple model. Follow the money, yeah. Follow the money. And so for CNBC, if you want people to tune in, you have two opportunities to make them tune in, right? Boring markets are no good. Markets that are going up and you're going to make a lot of money, get an awful lot of people to tune in. And markets that are cratering, not just going down a little bit, but markets, you know, there's a reason why you get these markets in turmoil segments from CNBC as soon as markets are down in any meaningful way because that draws people into because they want to know what's going on. So you have these these two emotions of fear and greed and CNBC just chases both of them. But they've chased greed much, much harder because, of course, everybody feels good when they're making money and they're more likely, if Schwab are advertising on CNBC and someone's stock portfolio is going up, they're more likely to call Schwab and say, hey, I've got a big portfolio I want you to manage for me or buy the products of an advertiser. So CNBC are always going to be perpetual cheerleaders. They're always going to feature 
the high-flying stocks. They're always going to feature Tesla on the way up and then be very quiet about it on the way down because if they feature on the way down, they just remind people that their cheerleading caused an awful lot of people to invest in these things and lose money. So it's just a business model, Rog. Um, you know, for me, I understand the CNBC corporate model. What I struggle with, and I really struggle with, and this is a, probably a personality failure of mine, but I, I just don't understand how someone like Jim Cramer can go on TV, given all the pumping of this stuff he's done, and and act pious and talk about how he warned about this stuff. I, I, I just, I really am at a loss for that, except to understand it from the standpoint that it's incredibly cynical because you, when you come out and you say, well, I did warn you about this, you know there are people out there who understand that you're lying through your teeth. But you're gambling on the fact that there are more people who didn't know that you said that and think that you are a champion and think you are, you know, bringing, shining light on a on a topic and you just, it's a numbers game. You think, you know, there's going to be more people that love me in either direction than there are people who will call me out. And if they do call me out, they have a platform. I mean, there's a few echo chambers in Twitter that, you know, to, to in which Kramer's a laughing stock. But does it really matter to him amongst the people that casually tune in to CNBC and have it in the background while they're, you know, looking after their kids in the afternoon? Probably not. So, you know, I'm very... Jade, that I'm very cynical about the whole thing, Rog. And I feel genuinely bad that there are an awful lot of people who are going to lose an awful lot of money they can't afford to lose at a time when they can least afford to lose it. I, I just think it's, it's a great tragedy. And it, I don't know that it could have been avoided, but I think it didn't need to be... The pain didn't need to be spread as wide as it has if it hadn't been for people like that. Yeah, but, you know, let, let's come back to you. We're seeing about the dominoes and Monday morning and uh, institutions removing their funds. You know, the piece you did on Tether, which is one of the big institutions, all of these are very incestuously linked, as you pointed out at the time and has been proven by FTX and how they were covering losses right, left and centre from other, other Ponzi schemes. How do you think... If the, your piece that you wrote for Tether, which was basically that kind of liquidity there was underpinning Bitcoin, how much could this really affect the digital currency phenomenon, Ethereum, Solana, Bitcoin itself? How, how, how low could this go, I guess is what I'm saying, Grant? Well, Roger, I, I am self-confessed and very deliberately not an expert on cryptocurrencies because I've, I've, I've not managed to find a way to care about them. Right, I, I just don't care enough about them to devote the time necessary to staying current on all the developments. So anybody listening to this that has spent an inordinate amount of time in crypto understands them better than me. What I do understand are markets and what I do understand is market psychology. And for me, what has pushed crypto to where it's gone is the promise of making them money. It's not the technology. It's not all the wonderful things that Bitcoin can do. It is the promise that you can make a lot of money without doing any work. That's it. That's mankind's oldest foible, right? We all want to get rich without having to do anything. And cryptocurrencies have played into that. They have, they have demonstrably made people paper fortunes for doing very, very little. And then they've taken those paper fortunes away and they've taken away the real uh, money that, that underpinned them. And they will do that more. And until Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies become about the technology and not about the price, this will continue. You know, the beatings will continue until morale improves, is, is the old joke. But these things yeah. are going to keep going down until it becomes washed out and until people aren't focusing on the price. Once the price doesn't matter anymore, you can focus on the technology and you can focus on building stuff with it and, and creating all these wonderful things that they promised us that the blockchain and Bitcoin will, will do. And digital and maybe they're lives. Right. Yeah. yeah, maybe they're right, Roger. And, and, I, and I think you're right about NFTs and all this other stuff. I don't think that's going away. No, it's but, not. But, but they weren't worth $10 million for a picture of an ape. They never were, right? They never, ever were. And anybody that thought they were got sold a lot of nonsense. It's that simple. But NFTs were 
will be here, but they'll be abundant and you won't have to pay a lot of money for them. They'll just be a little tchotchke that you can keep as a memento signal. Some of them might end up valuable one day, like baseball cards ended up valuable, you know, decades later when they'd all been lost and torn up, whatever. The fixation has been about the price, Roger. It's been about the price and getting rich. And at the end of every cycle, that fixation has to be destroyed. And that's what bubbles bursting do. They destroy people's belief that they can get rich quick and then they confiscate the money they were stupid enough to throw in these in after these schemes. And that will happen to crypto and Bitcoin as surely as it's happened to tulips in the 1600s and dot-com stocks in the 2000s and the nifty 50 back in the 60s and 70s. The same thing's going to happen because it always does. But yeah. once once that fixation with the price has gone and been beaten out of people, then we can focus on, okay, what does this technology do? It doesn't matter. The price might fluctuate in a 5% band for two years, but there'll be real work going on to build things of, of value. So this is a very dark period, not just for crypto, but for equity and bond investors and for anybody who who has, my friend Rick Rule has a great saying about people who confuse brains with the bull market. And that's what's that's what's happened, right? We've had a bull market, and a lot of people think they're very smart and they've been and they're great investors. They're not, right? You bought something, it went up because everything was going up, and everything that went up is going to go down. And now it becomes much trickier to figure out what you need to sell first, and then what you need to own to protect yourself from what comes next. It's, it's these are these are dark times in the investment world, Roger. We're going into, and people need to be prepared for it. That's all. Yeah. Um- I, I I think that's great to hear that from you. People will be grateful. You know my view um, very much like what happened after .com. We then had the explosion of all the companies that, that rule our lives just now. Uh, and it was a very florid time for innovation. And the internet was indeed the big idea. I, I do believe that the idea that um, our digital lives will become as important as our physical lives and asset classes and um, everything we do in, in our physical world will be translated into the digital world. I believe that will happen. That doesn't right, but, say... But that you won't it, get rich off it, Rog. You, you, you're not going to become a millionaire. I get that. I, 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 get, I get that. So That's I'm agreeing with you. I, yeah. I'm agreeing. I'm agreeing with you and saying exactly why people who invested in Pets.com lost all their money and didn't get rich, but the internet happened after that, and everything happened after that. This is going to be the same again. Uh, we are going to get people that do realise that younger people want to treat their digital self the same way they treat their their own self with clothes, with accessories. Um, with the way that they, 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 that sadly I've said this before, I think that may be tragically lost in all of this. The fact that there is a, a shift to a, a much stronger focus by new generations on, on a digital alter ego of themselves. And um, I just look at this with fascination. I'm starting to see some really interesting articles by important people like, you know, Scott Galloway, you know, talking about the, the the big companies, whether it's Meta, Facebook, you know, even Google, all of them now, uh, whether it's through things like, you know, the cookie apocalypse or the end of advertising as we know it, there's so many people getting laid off, Grant. And again, coming back to this podcast and the people that listen to it, um, there's a lot of people that are worried about their careers just now. I'm relatively honoured and humbled that a few people come to me and want to exchange some ideas about where I th- think that, you know, this is going to fall out and where they should be maybe looking to j- jump off one ship and go into another. But what I hear around Grant is that this is a very, very big shift that's going on. And the comfort that people had with salaries, with jobs, with progression, with, uh, as you say, a bull market in equities, a bull market in sports rights, a bull market in sports franchise valuations. I think they're starting to feel a cold shower that a a lot of people are getting quite scared about. Uh, I think you're right. And for me, this brings us on to one of my topics for this week. If you want to hear a bell ringing, then you look at FSG putting Liverpool up for sale, right? That, that to me, yep. was a bell ringing. The fact that they've come out and done that now, I mean, some people would say, well, you know, Liverpool have had a few dodgy results this year. 
they're getting tired of their little plaything. No, it's nothing to do with that. It's nothing to do with that. They realise that they've built a very valuable franchise in a fairly short space of time. And if they don't cash in on that right now, the value of that is going to get sucked down with all these other things in the not too distant future. And I, I think Fenway Sports Group are hoping that they can, you know, throw Liverpool onto the last chopper out of Saigon, get some crazy <laughs> private equity group to, to pay up for it because they want a trophy asset. And John Henry and his buddies can walk off into the sunset, rub their hands. And, you know, and you look at the language, they've been very laid back about it. You know, it's not, it doesn't look like a desperate sale. But I think they'll be entertaining the kind of bids now that six months ago they wouldn't have even come close to entertaining much because these are smart guys and they want out of an asset that we discussed this. You know, and nobody's put this into context better than you talking about the problems with owning one of these franchises and the money you have to pay to players and the way the finances don't really work unless valuations are going up and up and up and up, which they have been you're not going to make money running the business. You're going to make money no. in your exit. And so yeah. I think Fenway have realised that and they realised that this change that we've talked about in the last 25 minutes is a very, very cold wind that is going to blow right through the sports world. And anyone who's brought a vanity franchise in the last few years expecting to flip it, I think is, you know, that cold shower you talked about is going to spread far and wide. So uh, can we uh, extrapolate that and think that, the English Premiership and, and and all the major clubs are all going to be ultimately owned by sovereign wealth funds from a certain part of the world. It seems to me how that ends up. Yeah, well, look, not all of them, Rog, because some of them aren't appealing, right? They're just not appealing. Newcastle I'm talking about is the big appealing. Ones. Liverpool is appealing. Man United is appealing. Chelsea, Arsenal, maybe not Spurs, are appealing. And so, yeah, you, you can see how sovereign wealth funds, but even sovereign wealth funds, Rog, you know, even sovereign wealth funds, they've been the kind of dumb money because they've just had so much of it and they've had to do a little sport washing and they've had to pay up to get a seat at the table and try and legitimise themselves. I don't think they're going to be throwing around the kind of money that they've thrown around in the past. I, I, I just don't, you know, because at some point you need to get return on your investment. And when you, the risk-free rate is... 5%, and when the world is staring a global recession in the face and your revenues come from oil, it's a different calculus. So, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out, to see which owners can carry these vanity purchases and for how long and how many distressed sellers we get. You know, I look at the Glazers. I would imagine the Glazers will be, you know, the, one of the Glazers will be outside the head office of Aramco with a sandwich board on, you know, football <laughs> club for sale, you know, 15 billion or near offer, you know, no, no decent offer refused. Um, but it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. I think there's going to be some big shakeups. I think there'll be some clubs put up for sale that you would have thought a couple of years ago would be snapped up immediately that sit there in the shop window and start to get a few flies buzzing around it before anyone comes in with a meaningful bid. Yeah, and, and last question on this bit, because we have touched on all this before. Regular listeners will know this isn't us, Johnny, come lately on, oh, the world is a difficult place, let's do an article in an op-ed. This has been our zeitgeist for two years, very much. Uh, so welcome to the party. Um, what I would ask then is when you say all of this, how does that then work? Uh, we've, we've talked about this before, but I'll ask you again. The PE companies that have bought sports assets and done deals that have been collateralized by sports rights for 10, 15, 20 years into the future, how does their world end up, Grant, as we've now seen in the last couple of months? It's a great question, Roger, and I don't know it's too early to say right now, but what was interesting is uh, when FTX hit the wall on Friday, one of the first headlines I read was from, I think it was the mayor of Miami, saying that the city will use any and all legal means at their disposal to secure the 125 million 10-year naming rights for the stadium, right? So there are an awful lot of rights that have been sold, you can't look at a team without seeing a, a, a crypto-related sponsor yep. somewhere on their shirt. People are going to be wanting to make sure that money's all real, and a lot, and a lot of it won't be. A lot of it will be collateralised with nonsense. Um, so for the PE companies, 
there are going to be some really smart ones out there, Rog. Some of the old school PE guys who've been around for decades and know how the game works. But for every one of them, there's going to be five young PE guys who got rich and did confuse brains of the bull market and sprayed money at things that doesn't make sense if the discount rate changes. Um, and they're going to be in real trouble. They're going to be in real trouble. There are going to be fire sales of assets and rights and people unable to fulfill their commitments and auctions and you know, all this stuff is going to happen. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but we're going into that phase now. And so you're going to see an awful lot of these headlines start to appear um, that you would have thought unthinkable six months ago. And I think that just th brings one headline to my mind. You know how I like my little slogans, the last chopper out of Saigon and all of this. Sport, the sports sector is now a special situations market. Yeah. And I find that very, very interesting, Grant. If you know what value is and what isn't, what is fluff and what isn't, and you've got a bit of cash be behind you and you've got distressed sellers, fortunes are made when blood is in the streets. And um, I personally am quite excited by what's going to happen. And uh, we, we, we shall see. There's a lot of very interesting conversations going around. All I hear about these days is people saying, um, can you do a roll up? Can you do a build and buy strategy? Pick up this, that and the next thing when they run out of cash. And I'm nobody, right? I can only imagine what's happening in real investment banking places. You know, this is a special situations market now. Yeah, yeah. You know, what's amazing is how quickly that happens, right? I mean, it was um, it was nothing of the store a matter of weeks ago. And that's exactly what it is now. And, you know, the key phrase there, you said, when they run out of cash. And that's the mindset now. It's not, can you pick this up for me? It's when they're in trouble, I'm here. And look, you're going to get into bidding wars around some of these good assets, right, that, that just run out of cash. But the opening bid in that auction is going to be a fraction of what it would have been yeah. six months ago. That's the only difference. I mean, good assets will still find capital, but at much lower levels. Well, let's talk about the good asset in my mind uh, that was recently sold for $44 billion dollars. Uh, which of course is Twitter. And why do I call that the good asset? Because I believe the Twitter community uh, at its um, top end is uh, what I like to call um, the theatre of Athens, the school of Athens. It has got the opinions of the brightest and the greatest of humanity doing it for free and often getting into conversations that in years and centuries gone by, most people would have never heard. I believe Twitter in that respect is the greatest asset of all. That doesn't mean it's got a business model that can work with that asset, that community. But we saw, we talked about this, we saw a man eventually have to buy it. Um, there was a thought you and I had a few months ago that he was kind of do it to de deflect away from something else, doing it to sell some of his Tesla because he knows Tesla's a busted flush and that he never thought he would complete. I tend to think he may have thought that was the case, but realized that the law is the law in some cases and he couldn't get out of it. I believe he has bought this unwillingly and has not got a fucking clue what he's doing now, Grant. And I believe, like Icarus, this will be the thing that melts his wings and not only will it take down him, it will take down Tesla, it will take down the boring company and all of the crap that he has been selling to the CNBCs of this world for the last 15 years. You posted a really great tweet on what happened with how it was eventually bought for $44 billion and what went behind the scenes. Give us an idea about how you've seen the last week of just utter nonsense, blue tick, non-blue tick, fake accounts, uh, LeBron. Um, I mean, this really is calling a top. Surely this week with Twitter was the top of all tops. Yeah, look, I, I'm no fan of Musk. There's not, that's not a secret. I've, I've been critical of him for a number of years and I don't think much of him as a human being and even less of him as a businessman, to be honest with you. I'm, I don't even know if I'm in the minority, but there are people that vehemently take the other side of that argument and that's absolutely fine. But I think what's happened this last week as he's bought Twitter, and let's be clear, he was doing everything he could to, to weasel out of buying Twitter, certainly of paying what he bid for it in a 
who knows, some drunken rage on a Friday night. And he agreed to buy it the day before he was going to be deposed. So you can read into that what you will. But buy it, he did. So, he, you know, he now owns it. He's, the company's private again. And he's walked in on day one and sown chaos. And this is, for me, a wake-up call for a lot of the people who thought Elon Musk was some kind of supernatural genius. People are starting to realize now that he's far from that. And his behavior around the people at Twitter, his decision-making around the business, his crazy ideas and his vacillations back and forth and the utter chaos he has brought to that platform are nothing new to anyone who's followed him closely, who's followed his story closely, has followed his life closely and have looked behind all the fawning articles on CNBC and places like that about you know, the the real Tony Stark and the real Iron Man and all this crap that's gets spouted about him. If you spend any time looking into the reality of the Musk story, you're just sitting there, this going, yeah, well, this is pretty much what I expected would happen. Um, you know, it's, it's more entertaining than I thought it might be, frankly. Um, <laughs> but the level of chaos is, is about right. And, you know, look, um, there is a world in which he can sell Twitter for a profit, believe it or not, Rog. Sorry, let me rephrase that. There is a world in which Twitter could be sold for a profit on $44 billion at some point in the future once it's been taken private and it IPOs again. But I don't think it can be done with Elon Musk at the helm because he's going to trash it. And he's set about trashing it every day since he's owned it. And as I said, you know, I, like you, I, I'm a huge user of Twitter. I think it's a fantastic resource. It's the only social media I use. And, and for me, it's been incredibly beneficial in learning about an awful lot of things and finding some really smart people. But if there's if there's one thing Twitter didn't need, it was to be in the hands of someone like Musk, who is is going to ruin it. And um, he's, he's off to a flying start. Yeah, yeah. Listen, let's change gear a little bit into um, talking about wasters. And, and, and Musk is a very talented waster, but waster nonetheless. Two or three things came into my feed this week that um, I do still watch Twitter. I don't contribute it much anymore. Deli Ali, uh, who I believe, you know, I don't know where he is now. I think he's in Turkey, but his career is going down the toilet. And everybody was posting that interview from the series, All or Nothing, whatever it was, Mourinho telling him, be careful because one day you'll wake up, you'll be 50 and time passes. And I thought, my God. And then, you know, Pogba, there was a, a, a tweet from the impersonator Al Foran, who is a very big Man United fan. And he was talking about, you know, thankfully we've cut out the cancer of Paul Pogba. Um, and, you know, I'm starting to think, are we really understanding now that the the cost of hiring the what the All Blacks call the dickheads, uh, as opposed to having a no dickheads policy, is enormous, is enormous. And uh, then that whole theme was was uh, was was concluded with this something I want to read out. Do you know Mauro Icardi, the, the player of um, PSG Inter, and no. now he's right, Icardi's an Argentinian. He's an Argentinian player who has had a great deal of success. He's a very talented player. Plays for uh, Argentinian national team. Um, made his name in Sampdoria. Did very well in Inter Milan. Then went to PSG. He's another one of what I call these kind of people. Now, Icardi's story is actually quite funny. This is go long go. So uh, if, if you allow me, I'm going to read a Twitter feed, which is quite interesting. Uh, from human trafficking to arson, Mauro Icardi's love life has thrown up some ludicrous drama. As the Galatasaray striker goes AWOL again, here is the story of football's most chaotic marriage. Welcome to the wild world of Mauro and Vanda Icardi, his wife, his very glamorous wife, uh, extremely glamorous life. Our story begins when a young Icardi meets his childhood hero, Maxi Lopez, when he was a young player at Barcelona. The two end up playing together at Sampdoria, where Lopez takes Mauro Icardi under his wing. They strike up a close relationship and Mauro even joins Maxi and his wife Vanda on holiday. There's the clue. Maxi Lopez was married to Vanda. The relationship turns sour, interesting phrase, when it emerges that Mauro and Vanda have been secretly shagging. 
Wanda leaves her husband, Maxi Lopez, and she and Icardi officially become an item. The football power couple is born. Icardi moves to Inter Milan and comes up in April 2014 against Maxi Lopez, still at Sampdoria, in the game dubbed the Vanda Derby. As the teams lined up, Lopez refused to shake Icardi's hand. Well, no surprise there. Five months after divorcing Maxi, Vanda marries Mauro uh, in Buenos Aires, and, and class over all class, Mauro Icardi gets the names of Maxi Lopez's kids tattooed on his arm in, the, in what's called the ultimate stepdaddy power play. Then Vanda takes a very serious role as his agent. So in every transfer deal that he does, she is negotiating. And you know that, you know, we've got some people that were very close to Inter Milan board meeting when he was there and had direct dealings with Vanda. And I can tell you, I could not make it up. This, this basically is the kind of woman that you think it, she is from what you've heard there, negotiating multi, multi-million deals. So uh, here's the interesting thing. He then goes to Paris and uh, Icardi then has an affair with an Argentine model called China Suarez. <laughs> interesting. Uh, Vanda uh, hires the private detective, uh, finds him and goes nuclear on Instagram screaming, Mauro, this is another family you have ruined for a slut. Which obviously, as I read this, means that she's referring to herself as a slut because that's what he did the last time. And then this is the bottom line. Maxi Lopez, isn't it funny how at the end of the day, as the Chinese say, if you wait beside the edge of the river long enough, you see your... Bodies and your enemies float by. Yeah. Float by. Tweet from Maxi Lopez who pops up on Instagram with an innocent question for his followers. Do we believe in karma? Mauro Icardi and his wife are an absolute disgrace. They are human detritus without any values. And uh, they are the kind of player and their agents, whether it's brothers, fathers, everything like that, that football needs to really take a look and adopt this no dickheads policy. Because, you know, whether it's Deli Ali or Pogba or in this case, you can see it coming. It's just impossible to understand how some clubs are still signing this kind of no values individual. So, you know, when you see this and you see Maxi Lopez get his moment, a little bit like you got your moment with crypto or everybody that it's, it's quite pleasing, Grant. It's quite pleasing. Well, but what's interesting, Rog, is what we've been talking about at the top of the show it filters down everywhere. And so people will take on the Paul Pogba's of the world thinking one or two things. Like either I know he's a pain in the dressing room, because they must know this, right? They must talk to people at former clubs and f understand that he's difficult. But they think, well, we can take care of that here. He, he won't be like that at Manchester United. We'll be put him into shape. And then the flip side of that is, and if we don't, we'll sell him, we'll get our money back or we'll make a profit because someone else will come along and want Pogba on their team. That's gone away now. The idea that you can pay stupid money for players and there'll be another stupid bid along if they don't bid into the team in six months, that's gone away too. So <laughs> it's going to be interesting, Rog. You know, the ripples of this go everywhere. The ripples of, of money being expensive again go everywhere. So I, I suspect that you're not going to see these, these high-profile pains in the arse get signed for big money at club after club after club. I think when they burn their bridges, and I, and I suspect the last chopper out of Saigon in respect to that is that Aubameyang. You know, Aubameyang left Arsenal under a cloud and you got to see that cloud forming in real time in the Amazon documentary. Yeah. He goes to Barcelona, <clears throat> doesn't last very long there, goes to Chelsea, high profile, move to Chelsea. He's on the bench this weekend. Yeah. I, I, so I suspect, you know, his, his path from here is... Off to Turkey, Galatasaray. to Galatasaray, <laughs> and then maybe Evergrande in China, and Rangers. then the MSL. Who knows? And then but Rangers. it won't be, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but it won't be for the kind of money that they were getting. You know, everybody and everything has been repriced, and you only find out what the new price is when you put it up for sale. Interesting. Well, I've got one last thing just to close off the hour again in a lighter note, but it's a classic Italian story. Um, you know all the issues we've had with VAR. Um, everywhere 
uh, in Italy, not, not nothing less. Very, very controversial. And of course, everybody wants to know who these referees are. These faceless referees that are in some room and whispering in the ear of, of the guy in the pitch. Uh, it's a major theme in football now and not a week goes by where uh, it's not an issue. But I, I don't think anybody's thought about it like this. So here, here's the quote. Rosario Dofrero, a senior director at the Italian Refereeing Association, is one of 42 people arrested in suspicion of trafficking and smuggling more than six tons of marijuana and hashish into Lombardy. So, so this guy, Grant, this is true. This is all true. This guy was trailed for a couple of years on a sting operation because they thought it was him. They got him eventually, banged to rights, as you say, and he was put under house arrest. He was arrested. Now, what do you think happens to his employer where he's, do you think they sack him or do they promote him? Normally, we know the answer. In Italy, <laughs> this fucker under house arrest gets promoted to the guy in charge of VAR. Roger, it's the ultimate working from home, right? <laughs> but it, so th this story has, you can imagine, everybody's angry, everybody hates refs, everybody hates VAR. We told you so, we told you so, these people. It's so, so funny, Grant. And like, the Italians are good at the humour and all this kind of stuff. And this guy was caught bang to rights and promoted. Magnificent. <laughs> Only in Italy. Only in Italy, mate. Well, listen, I, I, I've got one more. I've got one more to finish go, with. Go, 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 go. Um, did you see the uh, the Argentine Trophy of Champions final between Racing Club and Boca Juniors? No. You didn't see no. this? No, this I is, haven't seen a lot of that. Tremendous. So, so for, look, Racing and Boca are deadly rivals. And I use yes, the word yes. deadly oh, yeah. advisedly because oh, yeah, sure. people do tend to get killed when there's violence at the matches. So they play in uh, the Trophy Champions final. Racing Club win 2-1 over Boca after extra time. And the referee of the match is um, the Argentine referee, Facundo Tello, who is the Argentine referee they're sending to the World Cup. Right? <laughs> and here's why, this, here's why this is interesting. Right before it was one all after at the end of the match... Reg just as regular time finished, there was some pushing and shoving and he sent off one player from each team, right? Then we get into extra time and a guy called Carlos Alcaraz scores the winner with not much time left on the clock. He takes his shirt off, he slides on his knees and he just sits there on the turf in front of... Uh, the Boca Juniors fans. Just it's not totally a good quiet. idea. Not, not a good not, idea. That's not a good idea. So, there, so the, Boca, the Boca players surround him and start shoving him. Now he, so he's got that, that sports bra they wear with the, yeah. with the tracking the GPS. thing. Yeah. He's got his hands behind his back. He's not raising his hands. He's getting shoved by all these players. They start grabbing his ear for some reason and pulling his <laughs> ear. Um, and it turns into a melee. The upshot of which... Uh, the referee issues a total of 10 red cards. <laughs> and so at the end of the match, Rog, <laughs> at the end of the match, Boca Juniors have five players sent off. There's six of them left on the pitch <laughs> against the nine players of Racing Club. <laughs> so it literally ended up six against nine for the last you know, minute of minute of, of the match uh, with 10 players being sent off. You can find this, magnificent. You can find it on Twitter. There's, there's, there's images of the ref. Basically, there's 22 players in the middle of the fight and he just is walking around in the middle of them just waving <laughs> red cards at people left, right and centre and just sending them off. It's absolutely unbelievable. So this guy is going to the World Cup. Fernando Teller, Facundo Teller, I think his name is. I can't yeah. remember his name now. Facundo Teller. And he is, uh, he is a man to watch in the World Cup. I'm not sure who his first match is, Rog, but 10 records in a game, he is one to look out for. Yeah, and as a Roman on that, on the World Cup in Argentina, of course, this is the legacy World Cup for Messi. You know, this is it. 
you know, goat, not goat, greatest of all time, most impactful of all time. He doesn't win the World Cup. He he, he can't claim that. Our generation believes he can't claim that. If he does win the World Cup, I think it's without doubt that he, he goes to the very, very top in my book. So for that alone, this is quite a, an interesting thing. This is the Messi legacy tournament. I, I totally agree. And I, and I think Argentina have a good crack at it. And uh, wouldn't it be great to see uh, to see an Argentina-Portugal final? See Messi and Ronaldo <laughs> going out, mano y mano, winner take all. <laughs> winner take all. Love that. Excellent, Grant. Lovely. All right, my friend. Well, it's been another... God, the time's flown by, Roger. We've gone, we've gone over the hour. Uh, it's, uh, it's always fun doing these. I'm glad... We got a chance to do this. Travel schedules yes. permitting. Um, yes. Now, thanks to you out there for listening. As always, we hope you enjoyed the goal and goal as much as we do. It was a it was a bit less goal and go and a bit more uh, wonky finance stuff for which we apologise. But next time, hopefully, the world won't be quite as complicated and we can just focus on red cards and uh, infidelity amongst teammates. <laughs> <laughs> Vanda Icardi, you, you look it up, Google her, and 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 go on to images, and then you know everything. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> All right. Well, mate, we'll do this again soon. In the meantime, uh, thanks to you as always for listening. Uh, we appreciate each and every one of you doing so. Um, you can find us if you don't follow us already. You'll find us at Entertained R on Twitter. Uh, that's A-R-E, the word. You'll find me at T-T-M-Y-G-H. And you'll find myself at RPM Como on Instagram. <laughs> on Instagram. <laughs> and not as in the lake anymore. Oh, yeah, of course, as in the lake. Oh, still yeah, as sorry. Still right, as mate. in the lake. See ya. Take care. Thanks, Grant. Bye.